from the Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Hi, podcast listeners. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of the Ask Christopher West Podcast, hosted by my beautiful wife, Wendy West. All questions screened by her. <laughs> it's true. I don't know why I needed to say that. I think people know that. But maybe there's some new listeners. Welcome to our new listeners. I bet there are. We probably have new listeners every week. That's probably true. I don't think we've ever like officially said, hey, new listeners, yeah. welcome to our podcast. Yeah, thank you for listening. And thank you for our faithful listeners who are tuning in to their 200 and what? 39th. 239th episode. <laughs> Hard to believe we started this, it'll be five years in December. Yep. Crazy. I wanted to share a little bit about just uh, finishing teaching a TOB1 here at beautiful Black Rock Retreat Center where we offer most of our courses in southeastern Pennsylvania. Gorgeous country here, surrounded by Amish farms and beautiful woods and we had 110 students, I think, from probably 10 different countries mm. all over the United States. I, here's the, we were talking about this as a team today at our, our team meeting for the Institute. That Everybody who was on the course was reflecting on how it went, and we always have a kind of powwow after a week. And Ross, who he and his wife, Elizabeth, are the co-directors of our programs, uh, he said... It's it's kind of sad that that the extraordinary becomes ordinary. Mm. So many extraordinary graces happen in people's lives on these courses. Mm -hmm. But as a team, we see it every course we offer. Right. And in the summertime, we're offering so many courses, the extraordinary can kind of become ordinary. Mm. But I just want to give a shout out. I know we had a lot of faithful podcast listeners on the course last week. Thank you so much for spending a week of your lives with us here in Pennsylvania. I was so blessed by it. I think it was probably the 45th or 50th time I've taught that course. But there's always, always more for me to experience, always more for me to learn. And there's always a give and take between the students and me. It's, I'm not just up there saying the same old thing over and over again, because this is a totally new group. I've never taught this group yes. before. And, and I'm pouring out for them, and they're pouring back to me. And there was a beautiful communion among us. And uh, I just want to say thank you again to everybody who came. It was such mm -hmm. a blessed week. And thank you for those who pulled me aside here and there and just told me a little bit about your story. Wow, what an honor and privilege I have to have this kind of view into people's lives and the work of, of God's grace. It's just awesome. It is awesome. And speaking of your work, is there any update on things going on with the TOB Institute? Yeah, I'll, I'll give, um, or we're kind of rounding the corner here to final promotion of the cruise that you and I are leading, Wendy, in October. I think we have five rooms left. Okay. So they will be, they will be taken. Maybe they're meant to be taken by you. Still a chance left. Check out the link below. We have a TOB2 coming up online. You can check out the link for our course schedule. We also have a, a course taught by a colleague of mine, Dr. Pete Colosi, 
good, good man. This is on the philosophy of John Paul II, all of the philosophical background that undergirds John Paul II's theology of the body. If that's of interest to you, check out the link that will show you our, our full schedule of online and in-person courses. The only in-person course that we still have left for the year, uh, depending on when this episode airs, we have one the first week of August, which is Spiritual Direction, a, spiritual, a course on how theology of the body applies to spiritual direction. Uh, but then the, the one remaining live course we have this year is going to be taught by Bill Dunahy, and it's called Poets for the Kingdom or Poets of the Kingdom, I forget which, but it's a tour of the works of C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien. It's going to be really, really exciting. That's the first time he's ever taught that course for us at the Institute. Mm. So, if that's of interest, check out the link to learn Absolutely. more. Absolutely. Are you ready for a question from one of our patrons? Let's do it. Okay. Here I have a question from a patron named Christopher. Well, Christopher, that's a good name. Kind of like it. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Christopher, for supporting the work of the Institute. So grateful. We hope you are taking advantage of all of the ongoing formation we offer to our patrons. If you're not... Make sure you go to your patron website and check that out. Yeah. Here's what he says. Dear Christopher and Wendy, I am a recently engaged 22-year-old man, and your work has been an indescribable blessing in helping to deepen my appreciation and understanding of our faith and my vocation. Thank you, God. My question is this. I have been a longtime fan of the sport of bodybuilding and am currently preparing for my first competition. Wow. I recognize that the culture often promotes an unrealistic and unattainable idolization of physical fitness and appearance. And I know firsthand the dangers associated with the idolization of the body. However, in my own pursuit of bodybuilding, I've experienced many objective goods, Mm -hmm. such as the development of discipline, that have carried over to my prayer life. Also, as a lover of art, there's always been something attractive to me about using the body itself as an artistic medium. Is there a way to incorporate my passion for bodybuilding with my life of faith? Or does it constitute an inherently vain pursuit? Christopher, what a great question. I I think you've already articulated the answer to your own question. You've talked about how bodybuilding has blessed your interior life. And you've talked about the dangers, and it sounds to me, from your very awareness of these dangers, you're in a good place. I would say if you were a bodybuilder and weren't even aware that there were dangers, we would have to have a much longer conversation. But the very way you articulated your question shows me you are aware of the dangers. Let me let me put it to you this way, Christopher. Any Good can be turned into an idol. Any good thing that we could pursue could become vain. I mean, I'll just give myself as an example. I, I've given myself to a, a, a good thing, spreading the gospel around the world, promoting the teaching of St. John Paul II and his theology of the body. That's, that's an inherently beautiful, wonderful, good thing to do. But I have to watch my vanity. I have to watch my ego. You know, I don't care who you are. But, you know, blessing people's lives with the opportunities I have to bless people's lives. And, and you know, weekend after weekend, I'm doing a seminar and people want to shake my hand and get their picture with me and have me sign their book. If I'm not 
if, if I'm not like examining my heart, that could become just an exercise in vanity. And, you know, without like wagging fingers or naming names or anything, being in a Catholic speaker circuit, I just know that's a temptation for everybody in the Catholic speaker circuit because we're all fallen human beings and any good thing can become an exercise in vanity. Is there anything inherently disordered in pursuing bodybuilding? No, nothing inherent. I would say it comes with particular dangers because, just as you said, again, you articulated it well, uh, the culture and the lies that we are told that somehow you're more valuable as a human being, you're more lovable as a human being, you're more desirable as a human being because you have sculpted your body. Those are going to be inherent dangers uh, that aren't inherent in the work that I do, for example. But that does not mean that you couldn't grow in virtue through it and navigate that in such a way that you could give glory to God. Uh, and, and I like what you said, that the body itself, I mean, this is theology of the body at its very heart. We are called to glorify God with our bodies. Could one, through a life of integrating bodybuilding with prayer and virtue, give glory to God in that way? Yes. Is it going to be particularly difficult and fraught with dangers, in, especially in our culture today? Yes. Could you do it with God's grace? Yes. Are there many traps? Yes. Might you fall and slip into ego issues and vanity? Yes, that's entirely possible. But better to get out of the boat and sink than never to get out of the boat. Jesus does not scold Peter for getting out of the boat. He, he scolds him, if we could even use that word, for his lack of faith. So proceed with faith, brother, and proceed with, with trust. Proceed with the same awareness you've demonstrated in your question. Wendy, what are your thoughts? Yeah, the only thing I, I wanted to add is maybe actually two things. Um, one is to ask the Lord whether there's some opportunity to witness to your faith in the context of your involvement in this, whether it's in the place where you work out or at a competition, if there are other people that you're interacting with, is there some way that your way of doing this can be a sign to others of kind of the truth of the dignity of all people and the the lies of the culture about valuing someone more for a certain kind of body type or accomplishment in um, this area. So, is there some way that you can sense, and you, you'd have to just look at your own experience, your own honest place where you are in your journey with the Lord, how can you shine the light of the truth in that environment. And I don't, I'm not saying that in a way to make you want to be um, kind of sort of contrived or forcing something, but, but really just looking for like, how could the Holy Spirit be leading you to be, um, you know, an example or to be a help to other people who are believing the lies of the culture that you're in contact with. So, that's a, a thought for you. And then the other thing I just wanted to encourage you to do is to hold it loosely. We use that expression, Christopher yeah. and I do. I don't know if it comes across exactly. What I mean is to to continually place that activity and anything else you're up to, but that in a particular way, because that's what we're talking about, before the Lord with 
with a surrender, a saying, I don't have to do this, I can let it go. Because your life, you're getting ready to be married, we don't know all the things that are going to be coming in your life, but it's important to just have a, a peace about trusting that if this doesn't continue to make sense in your life, or if it causes pain or difficulty living your vocation, that you can let it go and trust that that was for that time and the Lord is calling you to something else, I guess. That, that is such good advice, Wendy, and I think it, it's a kind of a measure of whether he's walking or falling into that vanity is could he let it go? You know, how would you feel about yourself, Christopher, if your muscles got flabby, right? Uh, would you think you're less lovable? Would you think you're less desirable? Would you think you're of less value? I watched a documentary recently on the life of Arnold Schwarzenegger, who made bodybuilding famous around the world in the 70s and 80s. And it was, it was sad to hear how, how he critiqued his body so, I don't know, down to the very last detail when he started you know, he's, what, he's in his 70s now. When he started not being able to retain that same muscle mass just mm. because he was aging, he really had difficulty with accepting himself that way. Wow. And that's a sign of, a, of an attachment. I mean, we all get gray and old and flabby. And um, <laughs> you can't, when you're 74, you can't look like you did when you're 24. I don't care how much you lift weights. Um, that's just not the way the body works. And Seeing Arnold go through that struggle was a window into his something of his interior. And I'm not saying that to scold him or something or shame him, but yeah, could you let it go? I'll share one more thought and then we'll go on to another question. It reminds me of something JP2 says, this whole question of bodybuilding and the ideal body, put that mm -hmm. in quotes, right? The quote, ideal body that the culture so values. It reminds me of something JP2 said in his retreat to artists called God is Beauty. And we'll put a link to that book in our show notes here. We publish it here at the TLB Institute. He's, he talks about a time when he was a young priest studying in Rome, and he went to the Diocletian Baths in Rome. And this is where the, the Greek sculptures of the nude human form are, are, are housed. And the, he said, I, it was such a laborious day trying to study these, these masterpieces of Greek sculpture. And they were, they were pursuing this idealized beauty in the perfect form of the human body as they understood it, you know, as their cultural perspective, you know, thousands of years ago. And he says, as I took great pains and efforts, I asked the question, what were they really looking for mm -hmm. in these idealized so-called perfect bodies of men and women? And he says, I came to understand the gospel anew and I came to understand it better. Isn't that interesting? He says, I came to realize they were looking for the manifestation of perfect beauty in the human body. And I realized this is what the gospel offers. Because the perfect beauty himself, God himself, the God of heaven and earth, perfect beauty with a capital B, took flesh. So how about that, Christopher? What the world is really looking for in the idealized body is the incarnation. We're looking for perfect beauty in the body. And perfect beauty with a capital B, God himself, God is beauty. That God took flesh. What's your name, Christopher? Christopher. <laughs> what does it mean? Christ bearer. Can you be in this discipline? Can you be a true Christ bearer? 
Yes, you can. It's going to be difficult, brother. It's going to be really difficult in a very painful way. But such is life. Uh, in the words of the prophet Forrest Gump, that's all I have to say about that for now. <laughs> I can say more, but I won't because this we're already getting too long and we have other questions to get to. Hope that was helpful for you, Christopher. Yes. Our next question is from Madison. Hello, Madison. I recently experienced a catastrophic uterine rupture. Oh, mercy. During childbirth. When my daughter walked out of the operating room, he said that it would scare him to death if I ever had another pregnancy. I'm married to the most faithful, patient, and loving husband. I want to have a beautiful marriage, but I'm unsure of how to handle our future intimacy. The hospital staff offered me different birth control options, also highly recommending my husband have a vasectomy. But I knew our faith didn't support these options. How do you recommend we handle our marital relations in a holy manner? Would abstinence for the remainder of our married life be harmful to our marriage? Bless you, dear Madison. Bless you, dear Madison. Bless you and your husband. Wow, what a what a trial you have already been through. Yes. And it puts right in the fore uh, a really important question. The first thing I would suggest is get another medical opinion from a faithful Catholic doctor. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes here to um, the the doctors, at least the uh, the place where they train for NAPRO technology, which means natural procreative technology. And these doctors are faithful to the teachings of the Catholic Church. Uh, they they train at the St. Paul VI Center for the Study of Human Reproduction. It's established by Dr. Hilgers, faithful Catholic. We, we just, I don't want to paint a picture like all secular doctors are corrupt or something, but if they have swallowed the view of the human person that they were taught in the average medical school in our world, in our secular world, they do have a ruptured view of what a human being is. They rupture the body and the soul. They think of the body as a thing that we can manipulate at will. And contraception is a way of manipulating the body as a thing rather than honoring the great mystery that is revealed through the human body. A vasectomy is, or a tubal ligation is really bodily mutilation. Right? So get another opinion. It may not be the case that another pregnancy would be as life-threatening as this person, this one doctor, is suggesting. So that would be my first suggestion. But let's just assume that that you let's just assume that you have a, a life-threatening reason never to be pregnant again. That would not justify rendering your sexual acts sterile with contraception or vasectomy or tubal ligation, because that's an intrinsic evil, which means there's nothing that could ever justify it. Mm. Uh, does that demand total abstinence? Let's just, before I answer that, well, let me just say, no, it doesn't. I'll say that. But let's just assume that there was some scenario, and I could think of any number of scenarios where a marriage might demand lifelong abstinence. Right? Let's take the example of a, a couple who uh, maybe the man is in some terrible accident and he's, his genitals have been so mangled or even lost in, in this terrible accident, he's unable to engage in the marital act. Okay, well, there's a marriage that's going to demand 
lifelong abstinence. Maybe a marriage where where um, the woman has has is dealing with sexual trauma from childhood, and it's coming back, and the way she needs to heal is maybe not lifelong abstinence, but maybe years and years of abstinence. If love demands abstinence, and abstinence is done in love, love is not damaging to a marriage. What does love demand in this situation? Uh, Whatever love demands, if we are faithful to the demands of love, that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. Sometimes we, we think, well, if it's hard, that's going to damage the marriage. Only if we, we approach it for, I mean, what's going to, what, put it this way, what's going to damage the marriage is lack of virtue. What's going to damage the marriage is sin. Virtue, building virtue, being faithful to the demands of love could not possibly damage the marriage. Now, Christ was faithful to the demands of love, and it led him to the cross. It led him to wear a crown of thorns. It led to nails being driven through his hands and his feet, and a lance being thrust into his heart. That's what fidelity to the demands of love led Jesus to. And then, St. Paul says that we are called to lo- husbands and wives are called to love each other in that way. Jesus himself says, love one another as I have loved you. That's going to demand sacrifice. And sacrifice is difficult. Sacrifice is painful. But by embracing those demands with the help of God's grace, and we are never without the help of God's grace, God's grace is always there to enable us to meet the demands of love. With the help of God's grace, we are growing in virtue, and our marriage will be strengthened. Wendy, you and I can attest to this, that that growing in the virtue of self-mastery and learning how to exercise that virtue in times of abstinence, and we've had even in our marriage some times of extended abstinence, mm-hmm. that that has strengthened our marriage because virtue strengthens marriage. Vice is what damages marriage. Mm. Uh, if one were to approach l- l- times of abstinence full of vice and get bitter and angry about it, what is causing damage to the marriage is not the abstinence, but the vice that is making one bitter and angry at the demands of love. Let's be very clear on that, that it's the vice of, of resentment that love is difficult. It's really, it's, it's the vice of sloth. And, and how, do, how does the church define sloth? This goes back to St. Thomas Aquinas. Sloth is the vice that is sad and uh, disenchanted and angry and bitter because the good is difficult. Right? That's the vice of sloth. The corresponding virtue that would overcome the vice of sloth would be fortitude, right? Fortitude, a, a, a courage in long suffering. In or, not because we're masochists, but because oftentimes the, de- the love demands, the demands of love involve suffering. Love demands that we grow in the virtue of fortitude. All that said, uh, I'll toss it to Wendy because maybe, Wendy, you could explain even beyond what you might have already thought you want to share here. The, the rules of natural family planning applied in, in circumstances like this, the strictest rules. Mm-hmm. And how that could 
how, how that is a real viable option. Yes, absolutely. So I want to just rewind for a moment and just say something about the, the story that began this yes, question, yes. which is your child was born. Oh, glory be to God. Yeah. And that is a time of incredible grace. And yet it's a vulnerable time. Yeah. And just as the Lord is abundantly present, the evil one wants to snatch yep. it away. He yep. wants to snatch away the blessings of that. And in your particular experience of giving birth, there was a heroic effort to save you and the baby. And let us praise God. Yeah, yeah. You're alive. Your baby is alive. Like, that is awesome. And beyond that, you, Madison, and your husband resisted some very powerful messages to violate your marriage. From hell, by the way. Yes. Those so, messages are dark. They come from hell. Sorry for interrupting. But. That's all right. That's so true. So, I just want to comment on that, to praise God for the graces that have been present already that enabled that. But I also want to say, I know that sometimes we feel a, a lessening of our confidence and more vulnerability to the voices that are telling us to take a different approach and and that's normal. I don't want you to think that I that that would be strange to know if if there were times when you're thinking, okay, well, we resisted in the moment, but can we what are we going to what is our marriage going to be like and can we do this? Like that's a natural question. It's looking at our own weakness and fear. The presence of the Lord in that time in the hospital is something to be always returned to in your minds. It's a grace to return to and to give thanks for again and again, because he was abundantly present in order to enable you to be discharged from the hospital as a husband and wife with your baby without those um, mutilations of your bodies mm. um, taking place. So, thank you, Lord. I'm so grateful. I don't know how old you and Ma you and your husband are. It's kind of cute to me that you asked, would abstinence for the remainder of our married life be harmful? It just makes me think you must be pretty young because, of course, you will not be fertile for the remainder of your married life. <laughs> <laughs> Good point, <laughs> But you, it must feel like the remainder from at whatever age you are right now. <laughs> yes, we who are just entering into our infertile years. That's right. <laughs> um, but that's maybe more the main question is, until natural infertility in our in our marriage, what can we do? And so I just do want to say that there was a time and a large portion of history where it would be very dangerous for you to, um, I don't know if it's a large portion of history, you also would have died in the childbirth. Right. Uh, you know, so, so we've created this new beautiful situation where you are alive to, to be a mother to this baby, to be a wife to your husband. And in that, you do not have to be totally abstinent because of the beautiful discoveries of science that we can understand so much more clearly the signs of fertility in the woman's body that she, her body naturally reveals when we've learned to read these signs. Um, they enable us to identify times in our cycles when we are naturally infertile. And so, rather than being required to be totally abstinent, we can be what we call periodically abstinent during times when 
we aren't sure of our fertility or we know we are fertile, we have a strong reason to avoid a pregnancy, we abstain from marital union. And when we are sure of our infertility, we do not have to abstain. Someone with such a strong reason to avoid a pregnancy will want to have more precise coaching in understanding the cycle and also coaching in how to communicate as a couple through the challenges of that. Because there are couples using natural family planning who feel a certain um, comfortable rhythm that maybe they just, it gets very predictable. For a couple in an especially serious reason to avoid, there has to be greater communication and there has to be a greater amount of tenderness and compassion for one another, knowing that the Lord is faithful. When one is struggling, Lord, give extra grace to the other to encourage them that they are loved, to learn ways to show great love and tenderness, even affection during those times of abstinence so that the marriage can be strengthened through that. And I don't want to paint that as totally easy. Like the ache that can be present in the heart for one's spouse is, can be painful. But it, when we are people of faith, it can open us to prayer in a deep way as a couple that is, is fruitful, is beautiful, is profoundly intimate. And so, I just want to say that all of that the Lord is holding out to you with love and saying, please come follow me, come follow me in your marriage. Mm-hmm. You know, if you're new to this podcast or you're unfamiliar with Catholic teaching here, you might just think, oh, come on, isn't that splitting hairs? What is the big difference between sterilizing the act yourself and just waiting till it's naturally infertile? Come on, putting this couple through so much hardship? Well, here's my typical response is like, well, what's the difference between killing grandma and just waiting till she dies naturally? It's the difference between a serious sin called murder and an act of God. And if we can understand the difference between euthanasia and natural death, we can understand the difference between contraception and natural family planning. I'm not saying those who use contraception are guilty of murder. There's no life they're killing. There's, however, they are taking the powers of life into their own hands, right? When we engage in the genital act, what are genitals? Why do we call them genitals? That Greek root gen means the power to generate, right? We call it the genital act or the generative act because this is the act through which we are activating our power to generate life. To activate your power to generate life and then thwart that power is inserting a no into the yes of the gift of self to the other. And it's thwarting the very power of God's creative will. If you have a good reason not to generate a life, then don't engage in the generative act. Right? But if you engage in the generative act, you have to place your generative power in the hands of God because it belongs to Him. Uh, when we thwart it, we are taking the powers of life into our own hands and we are making ourselves like God. Natural infertility is an act of God. Grandma's natural death is an act of God. But killing grandma and rendering the sexual act sterile 
is taking the powers of life into our own hands and making ourselves like God, and that's the original sin. And there's there's no justification for that. So, the demands of love demand fidelity to that. Fidelity to God's plan with an openness to His grace, not just white-knuckling it. Uh, this will deepen your intimacy because you will be growing in virtue, and that will bless your marriage. Embracing the vice of playing God and not growing in self-mastery, that will damage your marriage. Mm. Much more could and should be said. We'll, we'll leave it at that for the sake of just the nature of the podcast. Mm. But bless you, Madison. Please know yes. you and your husband are in our prayers. And can we, everybody listening out there, they're in, they're in a very tight, difficult spot here. Could we please, maybe just in the next day, commit to make some little sacrifice or big sacrifice, whatever you feel called to, for Madison and her husband. Please, maybe it's just not putting salt on your dinner or maybe it's not having a beer with dinner, whatever, some some sacrifice mm. for Madison and her husband. Let's do that for them. Yes. Our next question is from a listener named Frank. Hello, Frank. I'm a convert. And recently... I started a relationship with a former nun who has never had a romantic relationship of any kind. We are head over heels in love with each other. And since we align in pretty much everything when it comes to the things that matter, talk of marriage and kids is going to be inevitable. Here's my question. We are striving for chastity, but I reckon that at some point we will have to talk about sex and I have no idea how to do it in an ordered way. Oh, bless you, brother. I want to be mindful of her experience, or lack thereof, and I don't want any conversation like that to be an occasion of sin. How do I go about having these kinds of conversations with someone I want to have a more serious and enduring relationship with? God bless you, Frank. Wow, what an honest question. I hear your heart. I sense your heart. What a good man. Um, I'm really intrigued by by your relationship with this woman, uh, and I'm just going to assume here that she's gone through the proper canonical steps to leave her religious order. Just I'm going to assume that's in place. Uh, if not, that would be a, a different conversation. But I'm not going to go down that road right now. In other words, I'm I'm assuming that she's free uh, from the point of view of the church to pursue a relationship with you and and marry. Uh, that would just I assume you already know the answer to that. If you don't know the answer to that, I'd encourage you to find the answer to that. But I'm just going to assume that's the case. Here's what I often recommend to couples. I recommend taking maybe Theology of the Body for Beginners or my Q&A book, Good News About Sex and Marriage. And I'll, I'll often say to a couple who buys my book at an event or something, I'll say, here's a, here's a thought or just a suggestion. If, it, if you like the idea, go for it. Uh, read 10 pages a week separately. Take notes, not in the text, so that each person can read it, right, without your notes in there. Uh, but take notes on a notepad or a journal or something, and then have a weekly conversation about it. Maybe you go for a walk, maybe you go to your favorite park, maybe you go out for coffee, whatever's comfortable for you guys. Just have a weekly conversation about what you're learning in the book. I think that could be a beautiful way to give you some structure in in building a conversation and talking about what comes up and finding a language to talk about 
the beauty, the splendor, the dignity of human sexuality that is far from being an occasion of sin becomes a beautiful occasion of grace and rich blessings. That would be my suggestion. Yeah, I I keep coming back in my mind to good news about sex and marriage because of the very title. Yeah, yeah. Good news. Good news. It is good news. So, like something that can make you smile, yeah. something that you don't have to be afraid of. Um, I think that that is just a, a powerful, those are the first words, good news. We need to know that there's good news because we have a culture full of lies and twisting and um, misuse of this gift. And so that orientation for your heart, Frank, whatever your history is, to to understand the, that God had a beautiful plan in the beginning and to reflect on it and to allow that to inform even your understanding, not to think of yourself as somehow like knowledgeable compared to someone who's ignorant, but there could be a way in which her awareness of God's grace and the way that he works in the human heart will actually, you know, be more of a preparation than you can imagine for um, her vocation. So, you know, if, if it is to marriage. So, I just want to throw that out there, that, that you both need to hear this message. Yes, yes. And you need to hear it from a new perspective. I love that thought that you just shared with them, Christopher, because it just acknowledges we need to be on this journey together. Together, together. And maybe you're not great readers, or maybe it's not your preferred way of learning things. Here's a suggestion for you. I did a, a lengthy series of videos, over a hundred, I'm sure, just going through the good news about sex and marriage text and reading parts of it and then adding additional thoughts and commentary. And we have a playlist of those videos. I think they're all gathered in one playlist on our YouTube channel. So, we'll have the link to that in the show notes below. So, if you prefer to just watch a video together, um, you know, sit down once a week and watch a few of them. I think they're like 15 or 20 minutes long. And I do, I'm pretty sure there's like over a hundred of them. Mm -hmm. So, just, yeah, that would be another way to approach it. I, th I think you'll find plenty, plenty of, of things to talk about. And again, you'll find the language uh, and the way of talking about it that's not an occasion of sin, but an occasion of rich blessing and, and a deep flowing grace to your hearts. So, hope that's helpful. And I hope this episode has been helpful to everybody who's been listening. If you have been blessed, please share this episode with somebody else who might be blessed by it. And keep the questions coming. We're so grateful to be part of this global community of people who listen to the show. And it really, it's, it, it's a great blessing of our marriage to be able to just open our hearts and, and answer your questions. So keep them coming. Thanks so much for being part of this. Until our next episode, know it in your heart, know it in your mind, know it in your bones. You are a gift become what you are. Ask Christopher West is brought to you by the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione. 
Christopher and Wendy hope that the information provided is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you're going through serious difficulty, a list of trusted counselors and psychologists can be found in the show notes.